Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today, I'm talking with Wesley Look and Daniel Ramey, two of my RFF colleagues who have led the organization's research on enabling fairness for energy workers and communities in transition. This work has been carried out over the past year in partnership with the Environmental Defense Fund and culminated in a synthesis report released on March 25th, 2021. Wes and Daniel will share some of the lessons they and their EDF colleagues learned about this complex topic, including the many facets of transition, ways in which the federal government in particular can improve outcomes, and what researchers and policymakers alike can learn from various communities and countries already facing these changing links to the energy industry. Stay with us. Hello, gentlemen. It's very nice to talk with you this afternoon. Hi, Kristen. Hi. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Wes. Well, Daniel is, is very well known to our listeners, but of course, it's always a pleasure to have him on as a guest. But Wes, I think this is your first time on the show, so I did want to give you a moment to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit more about your background, and how you found yourself at RFF. Sounds good. Um, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you today, uh, Kristen and, and Daniel, both. Um, thanks for having having us on. Um, so I started with RFF in 2017. I came to RFF from the Senate Finance Committee and Senator Ron Wyden's personal office. I was I'm kind of shared between the two. And um, in my capacities as advisor on energy and environment for Senator Wyden and the Senate Finance Committee, I really got to know the um, just exceptional technical um, capacity um, as applied to policymaking of the RFF team. Um, so RFF was a kind of natural um, destination for me, um, taking a break from the hill. And, and I've had the pleasure since I've been at RFF to work on a number of different topics. Um, I'd say the sort of broadest umbrella of my area of research and work is federal climate policy uh, with, with some focus on U.S. state policy as well. Um, and I've worked on a number of different topics, including topics related to carbon pricing, um, just transition, and environmental justice. Okay. Well, great. Well, again, it's always a pleasure to talk with two folks who I get to work with all the time and then introduce their work to the broader audience. So um, as I mentioned in our in the introduction, um, today's conversation is about a new report, a new synthesis report that's actually the culmination of a lot of work that you two have been leading. Uh, and the title of that synthesis report is Enabling Fairness for Energy Workers and Communities in Transition. Um, this is an incredibly important topic. There's a lot to dig into. I know I'm going to have to be judicious with my questions. But so um, although this first question may seem kind of random, I actually hope it lays a strong foundation for the rest of the conversation. And I actually want to spend just a little time parsing the words of that report title, as I know they were they were chosen carefully, very thoughtfully. So Wes, can you tell us just a bit about why this body of research is described in this particular way. And again, just to reiterate that title for our listeners, it's Enabling Fairness for Energy Workers and Communities in Transition. That is a great question, Kristen. First of all, you know, to underscore the fact that we're talking here about energy workers and communities. Um, So there's a lot going on in the global economy, in the U.S. economy with respect to the pandemic and associated economic disruptions. Our work is focused on economic 
disruptions and, and sort of broader systemic transitions related to energy producing communities, um, communities where particularly fossil fuel industries have been sort of fundamental sources of employment and prosperity is language we use in the report. In this shift to clean energy, as society addresses climate change, we're seeing coal production decline. We're seeing the use of coal for generating electricity decline. So that's why we're focusing on energy workers. This is a, a body of research that's helping to look at the economic effects um, to energy workers and communities in the context of decarbonization. Um, the language around fairness is um, recognizing that there are costs and benefits to decarbonization. I think that most listeners will probably be familiar with the benefits of decarbonization, right? We are faced by this um, sort of existential crisis uh, of climate change, disrupting a whole number of aspects of, of our biosphere and our economies, etc. When we look at the costs, we want to be thinking about both when we look at costs and benefits, but especially I feel like when we are looking at costs, we want to be thinking about the distribution and, and sort of then the, the fairness of how those costs are borne um, by different segments of society. And if I am an, a multi-generational coal worker, let's say my entire community economy is based around coal mining as, a, as an anchor institution and basis of the economy, um, for me to potentially lose my job and for the tax base to go away in my community and how that might actually affect my children's schools, maybe how that affects healthcare in my region, those are a lot of costs for me as a worker and a, and a member of that community to bear. And so when we talk about fairness, we're talking about acknowledging that that's maybe not fair for um, individuals to bear so much of the cost. Um, so this research is looking at what policies, what programs can be put in place to um, not have that burden land so heavily upon um, such workers, energy workers and communities, um, or in other words, to help them make this, and this gets to the last key piece of the title, make this transition into a clean energy economy in a way that is not disruptive for their lives, in a way that um, allows for them to continue to have family-supporting jobs, um, healthy environment, and um, a stable economy and community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Thanks. Thanks for talking us through that. And, and Daniel, I want to turn to you now and ask why you and Wes and others on the team who put this work together, why you identify this as a critical topic at this particular moment in time. I think Wes did a great job of sort of explaining why this is a critical topic overall, but why at this moment? And maybe you could also just say a little bit more about what themes this work kind of brings together. Yeah, sure, Kristen. Uh, I think Wes did a great job of, of framing it all up. And you know, in an ideal world, um, we would have started on this topic a couple decades ago, right? Just like we would have started on uh, real climate policy a couple of decades ago, but but obviously we haven't. And so now is better than never. And so, you know, right now, this is a particularly, you know, it, th this has the potential to be an inflection point, partly because there is a lot of interest at the federal level on doing ambitious climate policy. That's also true in many US states. We talk about it all the time on this show. Uh, and so to the extent that those policies spur 
rapid declines or have major effects in these energy producing communities that Wes was describing, uh, now is the time to start thinking about how to address those negative effects before they occur. Uh, the importance of pre-planning is one of the key themes that emerges over and over again in our work. Uh, and so trying to address this issue before it becomes a real problem uh, is, is why now is better than, uh, than waiting. Uh, of course, as, as Wes mentioned, the transition is already underway for many coal communities. There's been rapid declines in coal production, coal mining jobs. You know, many of those communities, especially in Appalachia, have really struggled for, for more than a decade now. Uh, COVID has ex exacerbated many of those strains, and it's raised new challenges for oil and gas communities as well. Um, so I think those are some of the main drivers as to why this topic is really present right now. And of course, it's not just us. There are many other great researchers who are doing amazing work on this topic. Mm -hmm. And then briefly to uh, describe some of the strains that this work brings together, um, some of the strengths at RFF that we're trying to leverage in this work are, you know, there are several different aspects of it that I think we're able to contribute. First is our uh, experience and expertise on a variety of socioeconomic issues related to energy development, uh, how energy development affects uh, communities in both positive and negative ways. Second, we have a lot of work at RFF on future energy pathways. Uh, we have our Global Energy Outlook project. We have incredible modeling from Dan Sean and from Mark Hafstead and others on the team who can help us understand the implications of energy policies and how those policies will affect energy producing communities. Mm -hmm. We also have expertise on policy design uh, and we are doing more and more policy engagement with lawmakers on the Hill, as well as folks in states such as Kentucky and West Virginia and Wyoming and California and Texas, uh, where we're trying to use the connections that we have with policy community uh, to inform our research so that we're asking the right questions and delivering those answers to the right people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Daniel. Okay, well, both of you have referenced here the kind of the role of the federal government, and I, I understand that that's kind of the main focus here, uh, the role that the federal government can play in uh, designing policies that might alleviate some of the costs. And Wes, so the report series overall identifies four crucial areas of federal policy intervention to enable this fair transition for workers. And those four are workforce development and labor standards. That's number one. Second is economic development. The third is environmental remediation and infrastructure very hot topic these days. And the fourth is public benefits. So those are those are huge categories of potential intervention. Um, I'm wondering if you could just give us an example from each of those categories to help illustrate the types of interventions that you and the team looked at. You bet. Um, so I'll start with workforce development. And, and in workforce development, we do, as you noted, talk about policies that are in that stream of our research, workforce development, we're talking about policies that are designed to, you know, advance the skills of workers. Um, so job training programs, programs that help connect workers with new potential jobs. So what we would refer to as career services. Then we also talk about labor standards. Um, and labor standards include things like compensation standards, such as minimum wage. Um, it includes things like uh, workplace safety standards. As an example of economic development, I guess I would point to the Department of Commerce's Economic Development Administration um, Economic Adjustment Assistance Program. <laughs> so um, this is a program um, 
and actually it has a subcomponent that's very relevant to just transition um, and that subcomponent is called the assistance to coal communities program um, this is essentially a grant program to local governments um, and non-governmental entities to facilitate economic development through let's say the investment in um, core infrastructure like um, municipal water systems but again, that Economic Adjustment Assistance Program um, is a good example. In the category of environmental remediation and infrastructure, there are a lot of important programs, the EPA Superfund programs and Brownfield Redevelopment programs. Um, Daniel um, has done some great um, research developing work to um, remediate orphaned oil and gas wells, a huge opportunity there. Um, that's kind of more on the side of new opportunities. But the one that I really... Um, want to underscore most, I think, for coal communities is the Abandoned Mine Lands Program. Lastly, in the category of public benefits, I would say a key one is just our basic unemployment insurance system that we have in the United States. We recognize that ideally in a transition process, there will be no unemployment, that workers um, would transition from you know, a solid, good-paying job in whatever industry they are currently employed in, let's say the coal industry, into a, um, a new equally um, solid and um, uh, with, with equal compensation um, new job. And there's a recognition that in some cases there may be unemployment. And so having that safety net um, that's kind of a backstop is, is really an, an important piece. So UI or unemployment insurance is a good example of public benefits. And then there is there are some public benefit programs that are more focused on energy communities, like the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, which provides health care for coal miners who have uh, black lung disease. So, Okay. Well, I, I should note for our listeners that the series of reports that led up to the one that was released earlier this month, really each of those four delves into one of these uh, areas in great detail. And I would definitely encourage listeners to, to check those out for, for more of these examples. But I think even the ones that you shared, Wes, really highlight um, how many pieces of the policy puzzle can play a role in uh, in providing solutions here, but also how complex this is and how complicated. Um, and there have been a number of policies, as you, you know, as you talked through, that have already been in place that are sort of touching on pieces of the puzzle. So I guess, Daniel, maybe I'll ask you, of the interventions that have already been tried, maybe the ones that, that Wes referenced or some others that, that you've been thinking about, uh, what do we know about the efficacy of those interventions? And, and maybe a follow-up question is, you know, what, what tools are available to you as researchers to know what's worked and what hasn't, and therefore how to inform future interventions? That's a great question, Christian. And we, this was one of the first questions um, that we tried to tackle when we began this research was, we know we are looking at a broad swath of programs across all these different domains uh, that uh, have played out over years and years. What does the evidence tell us about their effectiveness and how they might be deployed in an energy-specific context? And unfortunately and surprisingly to me, the, the evidence is actually pretty thin on a lot of these programs, especially in the context uh, of energy communities, um, partly because the scale of the transition that we're talking about with regard to um, uh, achieving net zero emissions sometime in the next few decades, the scale of that effort uh, is in many ways unprecedented, right, in modern American life. Uh, and so there aren't analogs that we can really look to uh, that help us understand 
uh, the effects of public policies in the context of such a large scale effort that we uh, need to undertake uh, to deeply reduce our emissions. Uh, that said, there are some pieces of literature that we were able to draw from in a variety of domains uh, to try to help understand effectiveness of these programs. Um, you know, it, it's impossible to summarize across all these different areas, but one of the consistent findings from the economic development and workforce development literatures was that we do see uh, a variety of small positive effects of some of these federal programs for economic development and workforce development. The effects are relatively modest because the programs themselves are relatively modest. Uh, they're not trying to address, again, the scale uh, of an issue that we're talking about today. Similarly, for things like environmental remediation programs uh, and infrastructure, we do see considerable uh, benefits to society. Uh, from those programs, right? There are a variety of externalities that they're, those programs are addressing uh, that can improve people's lives. But once again, applying them to this scale and specifically applying them in an energy community context, I think we actually need to know a lot more uh, before we can say with certainty what works and what doesn't. Um, luckily for us, you know, there are research opportunities that we are pursuing to try and answer some of those questions with more precision. There are also great researchers, as I mentioned, around the country doing similar things. Um, a couple of those projects uh, that are underway, you know, Wes is currently looking into the Power Initiative, which he mentioned earlier, uh, trying to understand the efficacy of that intervention. There have also been, you know, economic transitions in the past, whether it's um, moving away from steel or textiles or agriculture uh, in different parts of the country. And I think taking those lessons and applying them to an energy context will be really useful. In addition, there are some policies that are more advanced uh, than ours in terms of energy transition in the European Union in particular. Uh, Wes has been looking into this uh, as well, and I think we'll be publishing some stuff on it in the next couple of months. And then there's also some really nice uh, evidence coming from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. They have a series of case studies from around the world, uh, I believe Vietnam and South Africa and one other country that I'm blanking on. Uh, but, you know, but there is evidence that is emerging that I think we can take advantage of. But unfortunately, I don't think we have all the answers right now. We never do, do we, Daniel? <laughs> Boy, if we had all the answers. Speaking for myself, I rarely have one yeah. or two answers. So Wes, you know, clearly though, I say that we don't have all the answers and yet you both of you put a tremendous amount of work into this with your team and and summarized a lot of what you learned in this final synthesis report that came out just a week ago from our recording time. And that pulled together lessons from across the previous series of reports, five of which you highlight in particular, these sort of cross-cutting lessons for policymakers. So Wes, let me, let me ask you if you could just sort of summarize those conclusions for us. You got it. Um, yeah, so the the five key takeaways from our research as as compiled in the synthesis report are and I'll just list them first and I'll say a little bit about each one of them so the first is that multiple and customizable policy types are needed uh, the second is that coordinated delivery is essential third we identify that strategic timing and sequencing of policy implementation are important uh, fourth underscoring in the just transition language that equitable and inclusive policymaking and implementation are critical. And then fifth, challenges that the energy transition pose for uh, public revenue streams must be addressed. So on the first, multiple and customizable policy types are needed. Um, just to sort of 
this says it all in a way that there is no silver bullet. <laughs> we Daniel and I are both often conveying that in various contexts. There's no silver bullet for a just transition. Instead, we find in our work that policymakers need to assemble a package that includes the various policy types that we were talking about earlier, workforce development, economic development, environmental remediation, and, and that benefits, public benefits. Furthermore, we find that policies often excel when they are tailored to unique local circumstances and when they are targeted for populations most in need. So let's say like coal communities in transition. So on coordinated delivery, uh, we talk about how there's both need for a horizontal coordination across federal agencies and then vertical coordination across levels of government. So you could imagine federal government, tribal government, state government, local governments, and then even stakeholder groups. So going from kind of um, right down to the ground level, making sure that it's easy for participants to access the many available resources um, is, and, and that federal dollars are spent efficiently um, is, is essential. On, on timing and sequencing, so, you know, Daniel mentioned we need to get started on this kind of right away. Uh, some of these communities are already experiencing significant disruptions, others may be not far off. So we talk about the sort of staging of implementation of some of these just transition policies. Um, one area that might have a good kind of win-win in terms of both near-term benefits and both medium and long-term benefits are some of these uh, uh, environmental remediation programs and policies and infrastructure, which you know dovetails well with the political moment we're finding ourselves in where the Biden administration has proposed this big infrastructure package because you put people to work right away building or you know relatively near term building the infrastructure that supports economic diversification and therefore more of a long-term uh, prosperity in a lot of these communities fourth uh, on that point of equitable and inclusive policy making and implementation are critical um, as the term just transition suggests right equity and fairness play a central role and we talk about a couple different um, pieces of this in the just transition context. Um, first, we talk about simply how um, addressing uh, transition is an opportunity to also address a legacy of underinvestment and environmental injustice in low-income and minority communities. This includes coal-producing communities and communities of color. Um, we also talk about something we refer to as procedural equity, or what some might call procedural justice. So this is talking about how process is run around the development of just transition um, solutions and then the implementation of them. Um, and that the um, sort of the key point here is that the individuals who are being impacted by transition, the people who the workers and the communities that we've been talking about are engaged directly in the dialogue that leads to the development of policy and then the implementation. We also talk about the importance of accessibility and transparency and how funds are allocated and, and then how programs are evaluated. On this last piece on addressing the challenges to public revenue streams, you know, I'm going to toot Daniel's horn here a little bit. So Daniel happens to be an expert on sort of the fiscal implications of fossil fuel production and therefore in the transition away from fossil fuel production. So while we may see that... Um, new economic activity, and that could include, but may not be limited to, clean energy development, could boost the, um, you know, the tax base in a lot of these local communities. Um, as we see these massive employers like a coal mine or a coal-fired power plant 
decline and then perhaps shut down altogether, um, you see a real decline in that tax base. Um, Daniel can talk more to that area, but so that's a highlight of the key findings. Great. Thanks. Daniel, so I also wanted to ask you about the place-based case studies that your team has worked on. Uh, I find those a really useful part of the series. And in addition to sort of the high-level work that Wes just described, maybe we can focus on, um, I'm going to choose one of the case studies, which is about the coal strip mine in Montana. So can you can you say just a little bit more about that particular research, including what you were hoping to learn by looking at that specific example of transition? Absolutely. The first thing I want to say about this case study is that it was led by Kelly Romer, who's a really great PhD student at Montana State, working with Julia Haggerty. Uh, it also included Rebecca Glaser, who was an intern at RFF. This is now also a good time to just shout out our other co-authors, who are Molly Robertson uh, at RFF, Jake Higdon at EDF, Gilbert Michaud at Ohio University, and Dan Propp, uh, who's a master's student at Columbia. Um, so we have this amazing team. Um, but so the coal strip study uh, was really driven or kind of came from Kelly's work. Kelly's been interviewing folks in coal strip for years, and, and I was aware of her work there. Coal strip in many ways is an extreme example of a community that's really dependent on fossil energy. As you might kind of infer from its name, which is coal strip, uh, it was founded in the 1920s explicitly to provide coal uh, to railways. There was a coal mine there. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, a large power plant was built with four units, and there was kind of a population boom, and a town built up uh, around the power plant and the mine. But uh, last year, two of the four units of the power plant closed, and the remaining two units, uh, their future is highly uncertain. Um, the town is almost entirely dependent on the coal plant. It's rural, it's isolated. And when I say rural, I mean like Montana rural, which is really <laughs> right, different from right. like West We're not Virginia. Talking Maryland rural, rural here. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, this place. I mean, it's 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 quite isolated, and so the implications of the mine and the power plant potentially closing are, you know, really dramatic for this community and everyone who lives there. So, so the question we wanted to ask is, how does a community start to plan for the future when its bedrock industry has the potential to, you know, essentially go away, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, returning to a theme of this conversation, planning is obviously really important here. But one of the really interesting things about Coal Strip is that they have not been able to plan effectively for a variety of reasons. Uh, part of the challenge has been that they've had uncertainty over the timing of the plant closure forever. They're, they're st- they still don't know if and when the plant, the remaining units of the plant are going to close. In addition, there are different stakeholders with different preferences. You know, some folks in the state want to fight to keep the plant running as long as possible. Some of them want to close the plant down and remediate the site. Some of them want to kind of have a phased out uh, process, but there's really no clarity. Uh, And that makes it really hard for the community to effectively plan for the future. Um, And, you know, those are not the happiest lessons to learn, but they're really important lessons to learn, especially for the communities that are most dependent uh, on these energy sources. Mm-hmm. I mean, one way to think about Coal Strip is that it's not representative of many of the fossil energy communities that are at least somewhat more diversified uh, and are less rural and have more economic diversification opportunities. But it does show you, uh, you know, as one fairly extreme example, Uh, the challenges that can face these communities and how if we want to get ahead of them, you know, you really need to be proactive and have some certainty about the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, certainty about the future is not something that's been easy to come by in this <laughs> past year in particular, but, um, but I do think that, you know, certainly the work that you both have done is designed to at least highlight some of the places where people can be thinking ahead. And that's, that's, hugely important here. So unfortunately, I know we're running out of time. There is so much here to dig into. I would really encourage the listeners to check out not just one report, but the whole series that, that really underpins this body of research. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mix up top of the stack just a little bit to close us out. Um, but you're welcome to recommend, of course, top of the stack and particularly U.S. because I know that uh, this is a new opportunity for you. But maybe I'll just, I'll just throw in a, a plug too that um, if on the top of your stack, you would also like to suggest kind of your future research area, your, your, your sort of top place that you want to go next in this line of research, I'd welcome that as well. So um, Wes, why don't I start with you? What's on the top of your reading stack and or your research stack? Yeah, so, um, I, and I don't know if this is a um, appropriate example for this particular uh, top of the stack conversation, but really the top of my stack is this this newly, um, I wouldn't necessarily say proposed, but now publicly discussed um, Biden infrastructure plan, this ostensibly $3 trillion package that would invest in American infrastructure and productivity. This effort is likely to be the primary vehicle for which just transition policy is established. Um, and at, you know, $3 trillion is a lot of money. So at a level that, um, you know, I think is probably fair to say is unprecedented. <laughs> um, and so there's, I think, a lot of attention right now to thinking about how to apply some of the insights that have been developed through the research that we've done. And as Daniel's mentioned, the research of a number of researchers out there, and as well as the policy ideas generated by stakeholders um, on this transition question. So I think it's a really um, exciting time. There's a lot of um, dialogue happening on, um, um, on, on what those policy solutions should be. So uh, that's at the top of my stack uh, in terms of um, what I'm focused on and, and excited about and interested in and learning from. Uh, in terms of additional research, um, one of the things that Daniel has begun working on is uh, assessing the scale of the challenge. Daniel mentioned that we have seen in the limited uh, evaluation uh, literature of these types of programs included in our research, the, uh, we have seen generally some positive effects of workforce development programs and economic development programs, but also modest in their um, in their scale of impact, but also modest in their scale of investment. Um, and so... Uh, I think more work needs to be done on assessing how much money do we need to put in workforce development and economic development to make a meaningful difference. Uh, the other area, just to briefly highlight, is what we refer to in our report as employment matching. Um, and looking into what we were referring to here is looking into um, the best opportunities for matching the existing fossil energy workforce to viable future employment alternatives. And just to use a simple example, you know, is are there good wind resources for wind energy generation or solar? Not to say that clean energy should be the, um, you know, economic driver of the future, but as an example. But then also looking at things like um, what kind of skill sets um, that workers coming out of the fossil fuel industries 
um, have and where where is there a linkage into a new um, field of employment that allows them to bring along that capital with them, those skills, right? So that they can um, have the highest wage um, possible in their new job. Also linkage around geography. There's there's um, you know a lot of question about to what extent will we be able to um, fully stand up um, robust economies in this, these same locations, um, and then there are other things like how do we make sure that job quality is the same? Um, so matching job quality, unionization of labor is of course a very timely topic right now, and we talk about other aspects of skill matching. But that's it. Great. Daniel, anything you wanted to quickly highlight about kind of what you're really interested in looking at next in this area? Oh, gosh, there's so many things. Um, I, I don't know exactly where we're going to go, but um, I think there's a lot of work to do still on the remediation side of things to kind of quantify the benefits of remediation and learn about how to prioritize those projects. I think there's a lot of really interesting economic history work that we can do too to try to get at some of the questions that Wes is asking about how to leverage the unique assets of communities where fossil energy might be declining. But uh, there's there's no shortage of great topics. So if anyone has other ideas, we'd love to hear them. Yeah, great. All right, listeners, this is your big shot to uh, throw your ideas into the mix. But as you both have articulated, you know, this is an incredibly complex area. It is incredibly important. And thank you for shedding some light on the work that you've done so far and, and telling us where you're going next. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Kristen. Yeah, thank you, Kristen. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.